Good evening, everybody. My name is Mike Barsanti. I am the Edwin Wolf II Director of the Library Company of Philadelphia. And it is my great pleasure, again, to welcome you to tonight's fireside chat. Um, our fireside chats are a way that we are sharing the work of some of our researchers and fellows um, with a, a broader audience. People maybe don't often get to hear these kind of talks or hear about the collections and the new research that's happening. Um, tonight, we're especially pleased to welcome uh, Don Johnson um, to talk about his book on Occupied America, British Military Rule and the Every Everyday Experience of Revolution. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Don in a moment, but before I do, I just wanted to let you know about just a couple of other programs we have coming up. Next week is our Juneteenth week, and we have a couple of events. On June 15th, we're doing a program called Exploring Sojourner Truth. Um, we're going to be talking about Sojourner Truth and um, mixing a temperance beverage in her honor. Um, and on June 17th, we're doing our main program, um, our Juneteenth Freedom Lecture, which is going to feature uh, Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers from uh, Berkeley, who's going to be talking about her new book, They Were Her Property. Um, we'll also have the poetry. We'll also have David Mills, a poet, reciting his uh, reading his work, and the event is hosted by the director of our program in African American history, Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens. Um, so tune in for that. Um, our next fireside chat is the following week. It's uh, I think two weeks from tonight. Um, I think the slide that came up before said it was actually tonight, but it's going to be in two weeks. Um, that's going to be, that's a, a book called Merchants of Medicines, the Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century. Uh, it's a new book by Zachary Dorner. Um, so our next fireside chat is in two weeks. Um, next week at this time, we will be having our Juneteenth Freedom Lecture. So I hope you can tune in for that. Um, tonight, we're gonna listen to Don Johnson talk about Occupied America. Um, Don is an associate professor of early American history at North Dakota State University, where his research focuses on popular politics and everyday experiences during the American Revolution. Um, his first book, Occupied America, British Military Rule and the Experience of Revolution, was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press last year in 2020. And other writings have appeared in the Journal of American History, the Journal of Commonwealth and Imperial History, and the William & Mary Quarterly, among other venues. Uh, Johnson earned his PhD in American History from Northwestern University, and also holds a master's degree from the University of Delaware Winterthur Program in American Material Culture. We're really glad to have you on tonight, Don, and we look forward to hearing about your work. Thank you so much, uh, and good evening, everyone. Um, I want to start by thanking uh, Mike and Deja and the library company for uh, inviting me to speak tonight. Um, it's, uh, as I was saying or before we began, it's kind of uh, one of the silver linings of this uh, kind of pandemic year that a lot of these book talks and, and research uh, seminars have gone online, uh, which has really reduced kind of the geographical barrier to, uh, to go into these. I know I've, I've uh, gone to a lot more this year than I normally would kind of living out here in the uh, the upper Midwest. Uh, 
Uh, in any case, uh, in the next 40 minutes, what I'm gonna do is give an overview of the main arguments in my book, Occupied America, uh, with a few uh, fleshed out examples of some of the key concepts that uh, I am examining in the, the, the longer work. Uh, and I won't have time to get into everything that the project encompasses, uh, but I'm happy to answer uh, whatever questions you all might have uh, or uh, might come to mind uh, after the talk. So the experience of, let me start my slideshow here. Uh, the experience of the American Revolution, we know transformed the deeply held beliefs of ordinary people uh, in new and radical ways. Uh, and the results of this upheaval are fairly well known. Uh, by 1783, a majority of colonists in British North America had come to reject a monarchy that represented the only form of government most had known for their entire lives. Uh, but despite the ample attention historians over the past two centuries have paid to the systemic causes, the far-reaching effects, and the political processes of the revolution, how these changes occurred on an individual level remains muddled. Uh, rejection of British imperial authority did not take place only or even primarily in the abstract realm of ideas nor did it occur solely based on economics, social conditions, military fervor, or cultural affinities, though this is not to say that any of these factors are unimportant, rather that by focusing on them kind of exclusively, historians have missed kind of a, a whole other aspect of the event. Rather, I argue that the radical changes that occurred in the minds of so many people happened over the course of their everyday lives. Uh, in very personal and highly contingent ways. Most women and men living in the colonies did not choose to rebel against or remain loyal to the British crown in an instant, or even for a single identifiable reason, but gradually as lived experiences slowly changed their attitudes towards imperial authorities. Now we're not accustomed to thinking of the American Revolution in these terms. And for good reason. In 1815, uh, John Adams influenced gen generations of historians when he wrote that the war for American independence, note the terminology there, quote, was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. For the founding father, quote, the revolution was in the minds of the people before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. Thus, again, the terminology, the war for independence rather than the revolutionary war, the war being an after effect of an already affected revolution. And although scholarly understandings of the revolutionary era have changed a great deal over the past 200 years, Adams's distinction between the revolution itself and the war that followed remains dominant in the popular memory of the event. Uh, and there are reasons for this, which, which we'll get into kind of towards the end of tonight's program. This oversight is serious as it has robbed us of a vital aspect of our revolutionary heritage. And you'll notice that this is kind of unique in the history of revolutions. Historians don't talk about the French Revolution, for example, without talking about the violent and uh, uh, really brutal civil war that occurred in the Vendée. 
Uh, they don't talk about the Russian Revolution without talking about the violent civil war between the red and white armies. But they talk about the American Revolution as kind of this distinctive event between the, uh, the war and the political revolution itself. However, for most Americans, the Revolutionary War was a traumatic, constantly changing experience, the impact of which was not felt in the abstract, but viscerally as a violent struggle transformed the everyday lives of ordinary men and women. These wartime experiences, I argue, more than the political maneuverings of a small elite that included John Adams and his cousin Samuel, uh, changed people's relationships to authority and reshaped their ideas about social and political organization. And perhaps nowhere are these processes more evident than in cities occupied by the British army. Uh, between 1775 and 1783, the length of the Revolutionary War, every large North American port fell under British rule at one time or another. In Boston, the presence of British forces to enforce trade regulations became a full-fledged military occupation with the appointment of General Thomas Gage as military governor of Massachusetts in 1774. After the Continental Army forced troops out of Boston in March of 1776, New York City became British headquarters for the remainder of the conflict with its citizens living under military rule from September of 76 until November of 1783. In the winter of 1776, the British garrisoned Newport, Rhode Island, uh, then about the fourth or fifth largest city in the colonies, uh, with a force of German mercenaries and British regulars in order to secure its harbor, protect the naval approaches to New York and Trek rebel privateers operating out of New England. Uh, Philadelphia, the capital of the revolutionary government, was occupied during the winter of 1777 into the spring of 1778 as a part of General William Howe's campaign to retake the Middle Colonies. Uh, and in late 1779, the King's army refocused its efforts on the South, abandoning the, abandoning the garrisons in Philadelphia and Rhode Island and investing troops in Savannah, Georgia, and in the summer of 1780, Charleston, South Carolina, both of which remained under military rule until late 1782. Now, as centers of population and commerce, occupied cities should have been bastions from which the empire could restore order and inspire loyalty among a wavering population. Uh, indeed, if a counter-revolutionary movement were to emerge anywhere, it would have been likely been in America's cities, where the population was more culturally, economically, and politically tied to the mother country than anywhere else on the continent. Uh, and British officials were not ignorant of this potential. In each city, army officers and prominent loyalists uh, collaborated to craft well-planned, workable regimes intended to, balance, intended to balance local and imperial priorities, and more importantly, to entice Americans to return their allegiance to the king. Further, military rule's exceptional social atmosphere provided avenues for many people, especially women and the enslaved, but also free men and even soldiers, to reinvent their lives for the better. These enticing new opportunities came with dire risks 
as the very military that created them also ushered in a violent new society under which previously protected classes found themselves vulnerable to harassment, robbery, assault, rape, and even murder on a daily basis. Still, the hope of betterment under military rule caused thousands to embrace British occupation, at least at the outset. Nevertheless, occupation utterly failed to bring about a restoration of imperial authority. Despite the efficient civil military administrations that evolved and the new administration, the new opportunities that occupation society promised, by the end of the war, the lived experience of occupation had weakened imperial authority to its breaking point. Survival under the harsh material circumstances of military rule forced even the most loyal subjects residing in occupied territories to turn to smuggling, begging, and other illicit means to feed and shelter themselves. Those living in occupied cities learned by necessities to obfuscate their loyalties, taking advantage of the British military's periodic offers of generous generosity to those who declared themselves loyal while maintaining ties to the rebel camp at the same time. The necessity to evade imperial authority and to preserve allegiances on both sides steadily undermined British authority. In city after city, by the time the army withdrew, most residents, even many who had wholeheartedly supported the crown at the onset of the conflict, no longer saw restored royal rule as an option. Thus, while Americans living under occupation did not rise en masse and violently resist occupation forces, and this project would have been a lot easier to, to research had they done so, uh, nevertheless, their everyday experiences under military rule had a deep impact on the outcome of the revolution as a whole. For the remainder of this talk, I'm going to highlight just a few of the messy, complex experiences of military rule that drive my book. Roughly a brief kind of precis of three of my six chapters. I'll focus first on the unique social world of occupation and the strange opportunities and harsh conditions it created. I'll move on to the ambiguous allegiances that civilians developed to safeguard their lives and property in the face of these dangers. Uh, and I'll conclude by demonstrating how survivors of military rule reshaped the private and public memories of the revolution and of military occupation afterwards uh, to erase and elide their complicity in occupation regimes and to safeguard their futures within the new republic. So occupation altered the social fabric of American cities fundamentally. While the army displaced many local elites, for others, military rule offered new avenues for social advancement, often in radical ways. An event held in Charleston, South Carolina at the House Pictured uh, in, during the winter of 1782 demonstrates the possibilities that military rule brought about. On a January night in the besieged city, British officers and newly freed black women participated in a night of, a night of revelry, which would have been unthinkable in any other circumstance. The women two years earlier who had been slaves of prominent Charlestonians went out according to one account, quote, dressed up in taste with the richest silks. 
At precisely eight o'clock in the evening, they were escorted by officers in gilded carriages to, quote, a very capital private house. Uh, almost certainly the one pictured here, which was the Miles Bruton House, uh, which served as British headquarters during uh, the occupation of the city uh, and actually uh, uh, survived the war and the Civil War serving as military headquarters again during the Union occupation of Charleston in 1864-1865. Uh, uh, and you'll notice that it is uh, uh, appropriately located on King Street in Charleston. Uh, right now it's, it's a private residence. Uh, in any case, uh, at eight o'clock when they arrived at the house, they proceeded up the steps into a grand Georgian ballroom. Uh, there they enjoyed a supper that according to witnesses, quote, cost not less than 80 pounds sterling, a small fortune in that period, before dancing uh, until nearly four in the morning. Although instigated and funded by British officers, the managers of the dance were three former slaves of prominent revolutionary leaders. These women went so far as to assume their mistresses' names on invitations to the levy, signing the cards with the surnames Pinckney, Russell, and Fraser. And uh, if you're familiar at all with South Carolina history or genealogy, you'll recognize those as kind of very prominent revolutionary families in the state. The event outraged many white onlookers outside of the city, with one correspondent describing it as evidence of, quote, the state of shame and perfidy the officers of that once great nation, Britain, have arrived to. Perhaps to defy their critics, the British officers and enslaved women who organized the event christened it the Ethiopian Ball. Now, the Ethiopian Ball encapsulates the nature of occupation society both in the strange possibilities it suggests and in the dangers involved in acts of defiance against the old social order. The black women who participated in the event had profoundly reinvented themselves. As the British army moved through the South, it offered freedom to those enslaved people willing to turn against their patriot masters. As these refugees came into occupied cities, they reforged their lives as free people for the first time. Uh, and we have dozens of examples of this kind of outside of the Ethiopian ball itself, but this is one of, one of kind of the most prominent. Seen in this light, the women who participated in the ball were quite literally taking on new identities. Even if they were still on unequal footing with their officer escorts, they nonetheless use clothing, rituals, and even names to declare their status as free women. Although most did so in less spectacular fashion, thousands of other newly freed people made similar journeys, uh, building new lives for themselves under military rule. But another equally important aspect of the Ethiopian ball is the precariousness of the event for both soldiers and for the women who participated. Despite their radical refashioning of themselves, the African-American women were ultimately in the power of British officers and even in their fine silks and gilded carriages faced the threats of sexual violence and intimidation. Uh, threats that we know from other accounts uh, were often carried out. Further, the event took place only months after defeat at Yorktown had all but sealed British defeat in the Revolutionary War, uh, 
lending the event a note not only of defiance, but of desperation. The officers who danced with the ex-slaves on that January night likely knew that they would soon have to cede the, the city and possibly all British territory in North America to the revolutionaries. While the impending withdrawal and defeat might have been damaging to their careers and social prospects, it threatened absolute ruin for the ex-slaves who took part in the ball. Freeing oneself was precarious in the best of circumstances, and many newly freed people saw in the impending British defeat an almost certain return to the state of bondage that they had so recently escaped, and for tens of thousands, they were correct. In this light, the Ethiopian ball takes on perilous, unstable notes, which defined military occupation just as much as possibilities for social change. Indeed, even for those it benefited, life under military rule was marked by hardship as much as by opportunity. Much of this was brought on by the demands of a large military population that often could not command the resources of a hostile countryside. In Newport, Rhode Island, for example, the British Army nearly doubled the town's pre-war population of around 9,000 residents. And remember, this is about the third or fourth most populous town in North America uh, at this time. Uh, added just over 7,000 men, 600 women, and 500 children, uh, straining the town's resources to a breaking point. Uh, and if you look at this, this kind of contemporary map of Newport, uh, the, the east to west axis is only about a mile long. You can walk from the uh, uh, westernmost point to the easternmost point in about 35 minutes, kind of similar to Philadelphia between the Delaware uh, and, and um, the, uh, the Delaware rivers. Um, so the, the kind of doubling of that population uh, really adds to the strain on uh, resources in the town. One British officer recalled that in the midst of a particularly brutal winter, uh, that the commandant had been forced to, quote, give orders for the cutting down of almost every tree on the island for fuel, along with tearing down many houses, barns, sheds, and fences. Uh, as many as 200 buildings were lost this way over the course of the occupation. When buildings, trees, fences, and sheds uh, ran out, the garrison began sending ships to other islands in Narragansett Bay, and even as far as Long Island in New York to, uh, to cut lumber for the post. Even with these extraordinary measures, Newport's situation was often desperate. During one particularly brutal winter storm in December of 1778, several German soldiers in British employ froze to death in their unheated guardhouses, found as an early chronicler colorfully observed, quote, standing in their sentry boxes frozen to death, each with a musket standing by his side. Food also became scarce. One civilian resident reported to a friend in Boston that, quote, you may be assured that there are many here who can scarcely get a mouthful of bread for several days together. A sympathetic officer lamented in early 1778 that, quote, there was a great deal of sickness among the inhabitants, which should be attributed more to their want of the usual quantity of fresh provisions. 
and Newport and elsewhere in occupied America, even civilians who wholeheartedly supported British rule had to endure shortage and privation, causing many to question their faith in the righteousness of the royal cause. The presence of large numbers of poorly paid and ill-disciplined soldiers also led to frequent abuses against civilians, especially women. In September of 1776, uh, during the Battle of New York, two privates in the 56th Regiment of Foot raped young mother Elizabeth Johnstone in her, hung, in her home on Long Island. According to their testimony at their trial, which was itself unusual, and I, I went through every single British army court-martial during the Revolutionary War in North America and found only four or five, uh, depending on, on how you count them, uh, trials of soldiers who had sexually assaulted women. So according to their trial, uh, which was really unusual, the two men had entered the, women's the woman's house in the aftermath of the initial British invasion of New York and violently assaulted her in front of her four-year-old daughter. In a similar case, a British court-martial convicted Private John Dowling of the 22nd Regiment of Foot for the rape of a Newport, Rhode Island woman on Christmas Eve, 1776. And both Dowling and Elizabeth Johnstone's rapists were sentenced to death. But while a few especially heinous cases of rape came to trial, uh, countless others went unreported. We have this from a number of sources that there were many more rapes and sexual assaults than actually came to the attention of authorities. And even when courts martial did try cases of rape, many civilian women faced pressure to forgive their abusers. For example, despite their convictions, both Elizabeth Johnstone's rapists and John Dowling had their death sentences commuted following the intercession of their victims. Likely this wasn't voluntary. Uh, almost certainly other soldiers in the occupying force pressured these women into either recanting their stories or modifying them uh, with threats of deprivation or future assaults or harassment or use of their power against civilians. The threat of such unpunished violence permeated occupied towns and let them an undercurrent of danger which undercut even the brightest possibilities that restored British rule promised. Now, in reaction to the harsh conditions and violent nature of military occupation, men and women living in these cities developed distinctly flexible loyalties, much the frustration of both British and revolutionary leaders who vied for their allegiances. In the course of their everyday lives, people living under military rule made pragmatic, calculated decisions to ensure their own survival, protect loved ones, and safeguard property. These choices could tacitly or openly support either side without prejudice. And as a result, the same individual could appear frustratingly to one side as a rebel while maintaining loyalist status on the other. Despite the fluidity of their loyalties, however, these men and women cannot be regarded as mere opportunists. Rather than just a selfish expedient, keeping one's loyalties ambiguous represented a deliberate and necessary strategy to survive the food shortages, cramped quarters, and violent circumstances of occupation. 
Now, the experiences of a young woman named Hannah Lawrence during the occupation of New York City reflect these flexible loyalties. And this is, is uh, a German uh, interpretation or a, a print of the entry of Royal, Royal troops into New York. During the summer of 1779, Hannah Lawrence, uh, a young Quaker merchant's daughter, came to despise the British forces occupying her city. An aspiring poet, as many middle-class women during this period were, she turned her pen against both the occupiers and those who comforted them. Lawrence found American women who entertained British and loyalist suitors especially abhorrent and crafted a particularly strident poem railing against the use of Trinity Church's grounds as a promenade area. Uh, and this is a picture from about 2014 of the grounds of Trinity Church in downtown New York. The church itself uh, burned down during the Great Fire of 1776, uh, about two weeks after the British entered the city. Uh, and its churchyard, its graveyard was used as a, a kind of promenade area for British soldiers and their dates um, in uh, the occupied city. Uh, Lawrence wrote of the practice that, quote, this is the scene of gay resort. Here vice and folly hold their court. Here all the martial band parade to vanquish some unguarded maid. The peace left anonymously on the steps of the ruined church caused quite a stir within the city. Uh, and Lawrence followed it up six months later with another poem satirizing the proposed demolition of part of the churchyard to increase the area for promenading. One verse of this next poem jo joked, quote, enlarge the walk to which the fair and shining nightly throngs repair. The female size by hoops increased. They're referring to the hoop skirt, uh, which was, was prominent among middle and upper class women, demands a tomb or two at least. So in addition to these kind of poems castigating uh, military civilian relationships, Lawrence crafted poems lamenting the captivity of Continental General Charles Lee, praising the Corsican revolutionary Pascale Paoli, uh, and castigating New York loyalists who had retreated to England during the city's occupation. So if her literature and her, her journals are to be believed, uh, and, and there's a, a, a great kind of proliferation of this in Lawrence's papers at the New York Public Library, uh, Hannah Lawrence very clearly supported the Republican cause and loathed the British forces occupying her city. A few months after the second condemnation of British officers and American women courting, however, Lawrence herself married Lieutenant Jacob Scheifeling, an officer serving in the King's army. Despite her earlier strong feelings against the British cause, Lawrence apparently felt few qualms about marrying into the King's army. Although she agonized over the prospect of marriage itself, in a journal she kept during her courtship, her prospective husband's position came up only once when Lawrence confessed, quote, to marry him while it continues in any way connected to the military will certainly be very disagreeable, but even that may have its advantages in traveling. 
Lawrence's marriage at first blush thus seems hypocritical, a betrayal of her earlier anti-British principles. However, even after the event, she continued to opine against the occupation of New York in her poetry. In a farewell, Hannah Shifflin wrote of the Hudson River that, quote, on thy banks while dire oppression reigns, thy beauties hasten to a general doom, no future spring renews thy faded plains, no more thy groves shall rise or orchards bloom. After this farewell, the Shiflins took advantage of that advantage in traveling and left to New York for the safety of British Canada, returning only two years after the end of the war. Now, Hannah Lawrence Shiflin's experiences demonstrate the ambiguities of individual loyalty under military occupation. Shiflin's case in many ways defies our traditional understandings of patriot and loyalist. While she supported the revolutionary cause in her poetry, her personal decisions favored the British. This flexibility does not indicate that she lacked conviction or devalue her clearly thoughtfully considered political ideas. Rather, as her calculating journal entries suggest, this apparent confusion represents a deliberate strategy. Living in an occupied city in which abuse of power, disease, starvation, and death were rampant, few could afford to be scrupulous about political affiliation. While few opportunities, with few opportunities available to even a well-off young woman living under military occupation, choosing a promising marriage represented perhaps her only chance to make the best of the situation. And indeed, Hannah Lawrence Shiflin's marriage did allow her freedom of travel through British military lines and the opportunity to escape the dangers of occupied New York for more hospitable territories. The flexible concept of loyalty to which she and many other Americans adhered reflected the social realities of military rule, as well as the small scale politics of survival, rather than the rigid political ideologies of revolution. As it did so, however, it nonetheless weakened the British Empire's grip on its American subjects. And indeed, even those who professed loyalism to the British crown also maintained ambiguous allegiances, keeping ties to both sides in order to survive. Mary Almy, a boarding housekeeper in Newport, Rhode Island, remained in the occupied town even while her husband volunteered for the Continental Army. During the summer of 1778, Almy's husband, Benjamin, was a captain in the Continental Artillery and part of a Franco-American force that surrounded and almost captured the town of Newport. And this, in uh, the summer of 1778, was the first kind of Franco-American joint attack where the Continental Army attacked kind of the northern end of the, island, the Aquidneck Island on which Newport lies, uh, where the French fleet blockaded in the south. In spite of their relationship uh, and the Continental Army's advantage, Mary, within the occupied town, continued to express ardent support for the British cause. In a series of never-sent letters to her husband during the battle, she made no secret of her thoughts on the matter writing that, quote, my dislike of the natives that you call your friends, the, the, the revolutionaries, 
is the same as when you knew me. And quote, you will not be surprised at the warmth of my anger when you find out how I have suffered. Later describing the destruction of much of the city in our, an artillery barrage, ironically likely driven by her husband, a captain of, of that artillery, she turned her anger against the Revolutionary Army and its general, exclaiming, cursed ought to be and will be the man who brought all this desolation on a good people. When the French fleet threatened to bombard Newport, Almy wrote, quote, I am for English government and an English fleet. I care not who takes the Frenchman. Still, the boarding house keeper expressed affection for her husband and worried that if the Franco-Continental force did seize the town, her husband would be resented in his own home, exclaiming, quote, after three years, a wanderer and not to meet a welcome. Like many others, Mary Almy's loyalties vacillated freely between support of the British cause and sympathy with friends and relatives engaged in the rebellion. While in hindsight, we might see this as a contradiction in terms, it was actually far more common than not among ordinary citizens living in occupied towns. And as military rule went on, British officials became more and more aware of this propensity to obscure loyalties and began to distrust even their most ardent supporters. Even those who signed documents, who signed oaths of loyalty could be fickle. Uh, and uh, in each occupied city, the, these oaths were passed out. Uh, and in the ones we have the most evidence for, New York City and Charleston, South Carolina, the, the one here is uh, an oath from uh, occupied Charleston in 1780. Uh, a majority of residents remaining in these cities signed these oaths. Uh, and you'll see they kind of have these, these kind of printed forms and boilerplate language, um, but they, they kind of hold people to a, a pretty focused and, and a pretty kind of strict adherence and a strict loyalty to the crown. However, this wasn't always the case. In New York, one occupation official uh, complained after a few years of royal rule that, quote, a man of some rank in this town, uh, someone who had presumably signed one of these loyalty oaths, quote, has a correspondent to the southward among the rebels with whom he has arranged to give proper intimation when it will be proper to leave the rebels and so vice versa, making loyalty a sure game. A council of top military officers in Charleston, South Carolina, concluded in the spring of 1782 that despite the fact that a majority of the population had signed these loyalty oaths, quote, the inhabitants amounting to 8,000 are mostly of doubtful principles. So even those who had signed oaths of loyalty pledging themselves to the British crown uh, were not necessarily loyal subjects. And as occupation officials began to realize that they could not take their erstwhile subjects' professions of loyalty at face value, they lost faith even in those who remained ideologically loyal. And this ultimately doomed the success of restored imperial rule. As a result, occupation regimes crumbled from the inside out, 
as both civilians and soldiers living through them became disillusioned with the project of military rule. Now, I don't have really uh, enough time to talk exactly about how this happened, but I'm happy to discuss it in the Q&A. Now, in the years after the revolution, the experience of occupation posed significant problems for those who sought to make sense of the event as a whole. Those who had endured the physical privations and psychological strains of military rule, and who had made the difficult moral and political sacrifices necessary to survive, had to find a way to adapt themselves to the new realities of a post-revolutionary world. Not all had the option of remaining in America. At the end of the war, around 75,000 people left the continent forever. These included men and women who had joined the British armed forces during the war, others who sympathized, and some 15,000 enslaved people, some of whom were destined for freedom in Canada, England, and West Africa, others who were re-enslaved in the West Indies and other parts of the British Empire. But tens of thousands of others equally complicit in British rule remained in America. This was the case with people like Mary Almy, the boarding house keeper whose loyalty uh, estranged her from her patriot husband. These people and thousands of others remained in North America in the US Republic after the war, uh, who remained in this, the US Republic after the war, had to obscure the ambiguities of their experiences and the compromises they had made during the war. To do so, they arranged the narratives of their actions to fit with a post-revolutionary reality that left little room for nuance. Just as they become adept at obscuring their loyalties to survive under occupation, in the decade after the war, civilians who had lived under military rule became just as skilled at hiding their wartime actions. Now, as survivors of military rule reshaped their experiences within the United States, they did so in the context of a larger reframing of the revolution, which occurred in the decades after the end of the war. One which is sympathetic to those trying to move past their lives under occupation. From the 1780s until the passing of the revolutionary generation, politicians, clergymen, novelists, and others attempted to create orderly narratives out of the chaos of the revolutionary years. Despite firsthand experience that many of these had with military occupation, and two of the historians pictured here, uh, David Ramsey on the left and Mercy Otis Warren in the center, uh, had direct experience with military occupation, they nonetheless crafted polemic nationalist narratives of the war, to which Americans seeking to reinvent their wartime experiences could cling. And these new works, uh, such as Mercy Otis Warren's History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution, uh, first published in 1805, the ambiguities and contradictions inherent in the revolutionary experience were elided, ignored, or replaced with fabricated narratives more in keeping with the political ambitions, the kind of united republic uh, of the authors. 
Such re-envisioning was reinforced by a larger American society that proved willing in the interests of renewed economic prosperity uh, and the maintenance of a fragile social order to overlook the offenses of all but the worst who through actions or words had sided with the British army during the war. So long as survivors of occupation proved willing to forget the past and embrace the new narratives provided by these patriot historians, they could claim their place alongside those who had fought against the crown from the beginning. Now to conclude the experiences of a man called Tench Cox, uh, demonstrate how one survivor of military rule escaped the consequences of his acts and actually rose to great heights in early Republican society. During the occupation of his native Philadelphia, Cox had been a strong supporter of British rule, developing connections with British officers and civil officials, uh, and using these to develop a thriving mercantile business and actually becoming quite wealthy under British occupation. Things changed, however, markedly in 17, the summer of 1778, when the British army withdrew and Cox moved immediately to cover up his actions and protect his position. Just before the British troops left, Cox snuck out of town in order to sign an oath of loyalty to the revolutionary state of Philadelphia. And this oath is in his papers at the Historical Society of Philadelphia. So right next door to the library company. And then the weeks afterwards, his letters and accounts show that he leveraged family connections to postpone and eventually dismiss an indictment brought against him for collaboration with the British. In the months after the occupation ended, while many of his neighbors were stripped of their property, exiled for the, from the revolutionary state, uh, and in the case of two men, even executed for their actions uh, during British military rule, Cox managed to protect himself by destroying letters and excising incriminating names, dates, and articles from his business records. Uh, and if you look at this in his papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, you'll notice that uh, it's very selectively redacted. He kind of went through with a penknife and cut out a lot of what would have been incriminating. Although accusations of collaboration dogged Cox throughout the rest of the war, the young man nevertheless was able to rebuild his life relatively unfettered by the legal consequences uh, suffered by many others. But the real success of his rehabilitation did not become evident until decades after the war ended. As he entered politics in the 1790s, Tench Cox's opponents periodically brought up his former loyalism to discredit his ambitions. People still remembered this stuff, even if indictments were dropped and records were destroyed. But his past never seriously hampered his ambitions. He was elected to Congress and then served as a member of the Treasury Department in the 1790s and the first decade of the 19th century. Uh, and his defenders explained his loyalism as circumstantial, as, quote, one useful indiscretion, uh, and uh, uh, narrated that he had been, quote, driven by violence and threats of a body of armed men when a boy to the British army. Therefore, life under occupation had not been his choice. Uh, and while living in occupied Philadelphia, he had, quote, in many instances been kind to the friends of the American cause. 
Never mind that he had made a fortune uh, shipping goods between Philadelphia and New York and the British Caribbean, uh, and that rather than a boy, he had been a youth of uh, 19 to 21. Finally, Cox and his supporters appealed uh, most revealingly to quote the necessity of moderation and conciliation in the post-war era and a ploy perfectly adapted to the sentiments of most of American society by a decade after the end of the war. So by carefully adopting this developed narrative uh, throughout his life, he was able to successfully defend himself against these accusations, rehabilitate himself and actually rise to a high standing in Republican society. And as Cox's example shows in the decades after the revolution, American society proved ready and even eager to forget the ambiguities, compromises, and messiness of the revolutionary experiences and to accept a much more clean, clean cut version of its memory. Even if that new version allowed former collaborators like Cox to, make, to remain in American society. This public forgetting was not only deliberate on the part of early historians and politicians, but also vital to the survival of thousands of Americans who lived under military rule and whose experiences shaped the course of the revolution. But it came at a steep cost and one which remains with us today. Because of this revised narrative, much of the complexity of the revolutionary experiences has been washed from the public memory of the event. And the formative experiences of a group of people vital to the success of the revolution has been pushed aside in favor of a static narrative populated by virtuous patriots fighting against misguided loyalists and oppressive British soldiers. Only by recounting the lived experiences that lie beyond this uh, uh, revision can we hope to begin the, to understand the complex experiences, dynamic processes, and lost opportunities of the historical American Revolution. Uh, and with that, I thank you for your time and I welcome any questions uh, or comments you might have. Thank you, Don. Um... I uh, thank you for that talk. Um, I, I put a little note into the chat um, before, right as you were finishing up, encouraging folks to put any questions in the Q and A. Uh, we do already have one question in there, and I'll I'll read it to you if you don't mind. Um, uh, this question is from Robert Wong. Uh, Robert asks he has a sort of a three part question. Uh, the first part is uh, it's not clear to me how the difference of occupation by the British is any different from any occupying army. I expect people would reject the government by the occupying army since they would experience the same hardships they stated, scarce foods, civilian abuse, et cetera. Uh, his second qu question is, if I heard you correctly, the British solicited support from slaves and women. Slaves were given freedom if they fought for the British. How were white women, how were women solicited to side with the British? And three, how would a common person or British soldier know if someone was a Whig or a loyalist they would meet every day? Great questions. Um, in terms of the first question, it's something I, I address in the book. I, I um, kind of cut uh, in the talk for uh, for time's sake. Um, it, the difference is uh, that neither side expected this to be um, an occupation by a hostile army. Uh, in terms of the British expectations, they they expected that they would go into these cities, and because 
uh, the civilian populations of each of these, these port cities were dependent on the British Empire before the revolution for their livelihoods um, and were, were closely connected to the British Empire, um, that it would be kind of a, a meeting of friends, that they would come in and not necessarily have to expend much of an effort kind of quelling these populations. Uh, and on the other side, there, there were kind of similar expectations that the British would reopen trade to the rest of the empire, that they would uh, restore the king's peace and the laws of the British empire, uh, the kind of civilian uh, British empire uh, in these territories. So a lot of people living in these cities said, okay, the British are back, thank God, the revolutionaries have been driven out. Now we can go back to business as it was in the 1760s. Um, and then neither of those things really happened. So, so expectations on both sides were kind of uh, not met. Uh, the British army found a much more resistant population than they expected, a much more kind of, um, if you will, kind of, kind of uh, um, stubborn population, less, less, less supportive of the war effort. Uh, and civilians found uh, an army less willing to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt and uh, the rights that they envisioned themselves having as British citizens. Um, so it became very much kind of uh, an experience like many other uh, foreign military occupations. And, and one of, you know, I, I uh, in writing the book, I looked at a lot of accounts of, um, for example, uh, European countries occupied in World War II by the Nazis, um, countries occupied in Europe uh, by the French during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and the occupation of, of North America has a lot of, a lot of similarities with that. But the difference is that neither side really expected that to happen. Uh, for the second question, yeah, the British solicited support from slaves, women, from a lot of other kind of underrepresented groups. Um, in terms of enslaved people, there was this, this kind of delicate dance of granting freedom. Um, but in, in that case, kind of only freedom in most cases to those slaves who could uh, prove that they were enslaved by revolutionaries, by patriots. Uh, and actually in uh, Georgia and South Carolina, uh, the British ended up returning many enslaved people who were the property of loyalists uh, to their former owners. Uh, white women were kind of solicited to side with the British um, for uh, generally for social advantage. Um, there's a lot of, of kind of evidence that for many, at least in the middling and upper classes, uh, the arrival of many British officers who were generally kind of of a higher social caliber than a lot of uh, people living in American cities um, was seen as a new opportunity for kind of marriage alliances and for raising people's status in the war in the world in the British Empire. Uh, a lot of kind of mothers were eager to marry off their daughters to, to these, these British officers. Um, but they're also given this, this kind of economic and social independence that they didn't have under the older regimes and under kind of the peacetime regime. Uh, many women like, like Mary Almy in Newport um, ended up making a great deal of money um, selling uh, shelter and food and laundry and, and kind of other kind of like um, utilitarian services to the British army. 
Um, and this, you know, was especially welcome in a, in a community where most men were not able to go about their normal occupations. And then finally, how would a common person or a British soldier know if someone was a Whigger loyalist? Well, they really didn't. Uh, and this was ultimately kind of what doomed the, the project of occupation as a way to restore people's loyalty. Uh, a lot of the British kind of assumed when they came into these occupied towns that, uh, you know, most Americans were at heart loyal subjects of the crown, that the revolutionaries were a minority, that they were spurred up by uh, uh, demagogues like Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams and John Hancock, um, and that ultimately the vast majority of the population would eventually go with the uh, uh, go with the crown if they just showed kind of the modicum of force. And the revolutionaries had kind of the inverse belief that most Americans were uh, uh, in favor of the revolution rather than the British government. And the reality was the vast majority of Americans were kind of somewhere in between. Um, you know, many of them had sympathies with the old government, at least as they understood it. Uh, and many of them had sympathies with the complaints of the revolutionaries and these weren't mutually exclusive. Uh, so a lot of these people kind of, you know, vacillated between those positions, but what was more important to them on a day-to-day -day basis was, you know, getting a mouthful of food or finding shelter or staying out of kind of the British prison system. Um, thank you for that. Um, we have another question from an anonymous attendee who asks about smaller occupied cities such as Castine, Maine. Um, did the occupation there differ significantly from occupation in larger cities? Yeah, um, occupation in smaller cities differ, and and actually, I should say, in smaller cities and in kind of rural areas, because because these these big cities were not the only places occupied, um, did differ substantially. Um, in smaller towns, occupation was. Um, could be you know, a couple of ways. So for example, in Maine, in, in the kind of Penobscot area, um, and I'm, I'll admit I'm unfamiliar kind of with, with Castine itself, um, but I know in, in coastal Maine, in North Carolina, in um, kind of coastal Florida, you know, the British occupied several towns uh, as kind of garrison towns. And, and these were much more intimate occupations than in these cities where British garrisons uh, intermingled with local populations, um, you know, in a much more, um, uh, I, I hate to repeat myself, but intimate way, um, you know, they, they kind of couldn't avoid uh, intermingling with the social life and the, um, the, the very um, kind of uh, fabric of the town. Um, and then in some rural places in America, like for example, the British occupied most of uh, New Jersey, uh, Georgia, and South Carolina at various points in the war. Uh, but that occupation was a lot more tentative than it was in towns, in cities. Uh, in places like New York uh, or Philadelphia, when it was occupied by the British, uh, you know, the, the civilians encountered British soldiers as a fact of everyday life. You couldn't go out your door really without being confronted by the realities of British occupation. Uh, 
Whereas in backcountry South Carolina or in places like the vicinity of, of kind of Savannah, Georgia or uh, New Jersey during the, the kind of foraging campaigns of 1776 and 1777, uh, civilians living on isolated farmsteads could go weeks or even months without seeing a British soldier, uh, even if they were living within technically British occupied territories. Um, so there's there's differences, and I'd say you know in in the smaller towns and posts, you know occupation is much more intense, um, and in the the rural areas, it's it's much more kind of variable. Uh, the reason that that my book focuses on on urban areas is is a because kind of their importance to uh, revolutionary and and kind of colonial politics. Uh, and B simply because kind of that's where most of the records are. That's that's kind of you know where where we where most of the evidence comes uh, for for this narrative. Well, thank you, Don. Um, I have my own. If I could just ask a quick question myself, I, it's so sure. many. It, there's so many like intriguing things. There's also so many ways in which the library company's own history um, is entwined with what you were talking about. The library company was closed during much of the period of the. British occupation of Philadelphia, and apparently a, uh, a copy of Phyllis Wheatley's poems was taken, oh, no. <laughs> as well as some other volumes. Um, uh, we, we also, um, a, the, the story of that uh, social gathering in Charleston reminded me of the gathering in Philadelphia, the big party that was, you know, I, the word just disappeared out of my mind. The Meschianza. Thank you, the Meschianza. Yeah. Thank you. Can't believe I, I didn't remember that, but it, it it definitely evoked that for me as well. The you know that strange uh, enormous party that was thrown here during the British occupation of Philadelphia. Um, the the one other question that occurred to me though was, did you find any difference between the origin of the troops themselves? You know, were troops coming out of Ireland or coming out of different parts of the British Empire is occupying, it, were, were there different um, responses to the local public depending on where those troops were coming from? It's one thing I actually looked hard for um, in, in the evidence and, and I wasn't able to find um, very, much of, uh, very much evidence for that. Um, you know, on the one hand, my, my suspicion would be yes. Like my, my suspicion is that, you know, a lot of the soldiers, especially who uh, in the early in the war were, were uh, taken from garrison duty in Ireland and in the British Caribbean. And so they would have had uh, a lot of experiences kind of living among kind of otherized peoples, right? In Ireland, among the, the Catholic Irish mm -hmm. who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, looked white, looked kind of spoke English, but were, you know, very much kind of a hostile population. Uh, and in the West Indies, you know, among these enslaved populations, right, that they were there to police against. Um, but I was never able to kind of find, you know, the smoking gun uh, that said kind of like, we're taking these policies from right. colonial Ireland to, uh, to, to, or colonial the West Indies to North America. 
What's interesting though is, is a number of these, these uh, regiments that did serve in colonial North America go on to serve in the West Indies and in India uh, and, and Spain uh, later on in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, and I think you know there, there's something there about kind of how this experience, uh, this experience kind of influences the future of the British Empire kind of going forward, the more author authoritarian kind of harsh empire of, of the early 19th century. Right, right. I mean, it is fascinating what you described as the, you know, what, I'm not, I, I don't know if you use this word, it's, but the kind of erasure of that, um, that uh, ambiguity, that, that tension, um, the, the sort of, and the porousness between the different sides and how people living in these occupied cities would have had to have just figured out a way to get along, you know, sign your oath if you have to, write a poem if you want to, <laughs> but, you know, that, that they were probably, you know, for the most part, were probably always kind of floating on one side of the line or the other and hoping nobody would make them choose um, and, and waiting for fate to figure out who the winner was going to be. Um, and that, that element of, of tension is something that was, you know, as, as you've described it, like willfully erased um in the year and was probably part of the healing process following the revolution you could look at it that way but. yeah definitely i mean it's also one of those things that's uh you know we don't tend to think of it with the american revolution right because we we tend to think you know oh of course everyone were patriots and right. you know, those loyalists were just those those right. sixty thousand people who who left um but you know i, I took a lot of inspiration from philippe Beren's uh, uh history of the uh french occupation by the nazis in which i think it is in his first paragraph he says you know everyone was a collaborator and everyone was a resistor to, to kind of you know some degree or, or another the, this this kind of historical hindsight of people who were kind of perfect patriots and perfect loyalists just doesn't exist right People just need to, you know, it's, it was hard enough to live, you know. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, uh, we have we've come to the we've come to the end of our hour and then some. Um, uh, Don, thank you again for taking the time to share your work with us. Um, it's fascinating, and uh, really enjoyed hearing you speak about it. Um, again, I hope uh, those of you tuning in will. Uh, come back again next week for our Juneteenth program. It starts at 5.30 on next Thursday. Um, and then in two weeks for our, the next in this series of um, Fireside Chats. Anyway, thank you all. I hope everyone has a good night. Don, thank you again for your talk. And um, good night, and I hope to see you again soon. Thanks so much. I can't wait to be back in Philadelphia in person. Great. Hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.